Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Helen Morse has always been drawn to the thrill and risk of climbing and the connection to the natural world it brings. But when she became a mother for the first time, she began to re-examine her relationship with the elements and she joins me to discuss her memoir, A Line Above the Sky, A Story of Mountains and Motherhood. Dr Mark Rowe has been a practising family physician for over 25 years. After his own experience of burnout, he became one of the first medical doctors in Ireland to study lifestyle medicine. His latest book, The Vitality Mark, your prescription for feeling energised, invigorated, enthusiastic and optimistic each day, helps identify gaps in our well-being and offers evidence-based strategies to transform the quality of our lives. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? It's been good. It was my birthday this week, so that's always a good one. It is a privilege to age, as they say. And sure, don't you get wiser as you progress through life? And it's nice to have the special people in your life make a fuss of you. I loved it. And the sunshine. So all good stuff this week. I am trying at the moment to slow down. I tend as a person to always be rushing around. And to be honest, Busy though life is, it can be a state of mind in a way. Fiona Brennan was on the show a couple of weeks back to talk about her course Light Up the World and she invited me to take part. So I've been listening to her morning and evening meditations as well as watching the information videos. She's a clinical hypnotherapist, so in the audio, in the morning and the evening. I know it's aiming to tweak my mindset in a way and she talks a lot about calm, about letting go of control and busyness. So it's probably come at the right time. I tend to rush everywhere. Again, I think if I planned better, I wouldn't feel as rushed. So that's a mission I'm on too. But don't worry, I don't beat myself up about it. We're all just doing our best. Awareness is the first stop, then some reflection, then hopefully redemption and revolution. And I hosted the first Health at Every Size Summit and I haven't had a chance to say What an incredible experience it was. You can listen back to the episode with nutritionist Neve Orbinski to find out more. But basically, it involves a health approach which doesn't focus on weight. Healthy habits are introduced to people and they're more likely to be kept when there isn't such a focus on the scales. There was an incredible panel of speakers, PhD doctors changing their focus and the conversation around weight focused health and talking about how research needs to catch up to this theory. And it is. Neve on nutrition and trusting your inner expert, psychotherapist Christine O'Reardon on the dangers of guilt and shame and physio June Lanigan on how movement is for everyone. It was informative, uplifting and Carly Keegan spoke last about her lived experience of life in a bigger body from going on her first diet at 12, battling with it all through her teens and 20s, never feeling like she succeeded and always either restricting or binging, saying no to opportunities, holidays, parties. And if she did go, she felt self-conscious the whole time to where she is in her life now, unpacking it all, working with nutritionist Neve and working towards a healthy life that doesn't focus on her weight. It was powerful stuff. She's worth a follow on Instagram. They all are, but I'm going to go with one at Rediscovering Carly. I'm so passionate about helping spread this message and it was great to be a part of that day and there will be more. 
You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Dr. Mark Rowe has been practising family physician for over 20 years. He's the founder of the Waterford Health Park, which has become both the base for Dr. Rowe's medical practice, as well as the lifestyle medicine Be Well Clinic. He's the author of two books, A Prescription for Happiness, The Ten Commitments to a Happier, Healthier Life and The Men's Health Book. His TEDx talk, titled The Doctor of the Future, Prescribing Lifestyle as Medicine, has had over 80,000 views and he's among one of the first medical professionals globally to be certified as Diplomat of the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Lifestyle medicine is defined as an evidence-based, lifestyle-first approach to the prevention and treatment of chronic disease. Mark has always held a strong desire to change the culture of a pill for every ill, advocating lifestyle change as the best medicine for lasting well-being. He's on the line now to talk about his latest book. Dr. Mark Rowe, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Claire. Um, it's very interesting to have you on because the more I read about you, I watched your TED talk, the more I'm so happy to hear that lifestyle medicine is becoming more and more embedded alongside the medical. Tell us a little bit about you. It was your own burnout which led to this instra- interest in lifestyle medicine. I was always interested in people, Claire. I think that's what attracted me into general practice, which is very, it's a very people centred Mm. uh, type of healthcare. And of course, when the economic crash came back in 2008, I was meeting so many people that were really, you know, really struggling. So many people lost their jobs at negative equity. So many people were trapped. I mean, a lot of young people without commitments simply emigrated, but many others were trapped. And more than medication, even though some people did need uh, antidepressants and I'm not saying medication doesn't have an important role to play in health, you know, it's but we need more than pills. And it was clear at that time that a lot of people really needed a new sense of hope, new sense of meaning, they needed skills for their own self-care and resilience strategies. And that's really when I began to look at, you know, lifestyle as medicine positive health, positive psychology, and began to bring that into practice with patients and people experienced benefits in all sorts of ways, whether it was the really simple things like keeping a written gratitude practice, uh, writing about your best possible future self, learning to reframe experiences through a more optimistic mindset. And what's fascinating really is there's a wealth of science, a growing body of science backing up the significant health and well-being benefits of all of this and of course actions speak louder than words and I found you know towards the end of 2013 I was I'd been extremely busy in my practice for years there were there was a lot of uh, pressure we'd had suffered financial emergency cuts um, during the during the crash the workload was extremely intense I'd had a couple of uh, bereavements of people close to me there's a number of factors kind of kind of tsunami things kind of came together and I began to feel a bit burnt out. I lost my mojo for a while. I felt flat. I, I lost my spark, as I'd often say. And you know what I did, Claire? I, 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 I swallowed my own meds and I did what I would tell anyone else that I would ever speak speak to about this. I, I, I went and spoke to somebody, uh, which was very interesting to, you know, because as a doctor, I suppose sometimes there's a perception you have all the answers. And of course we don't. We're human beings like everyone else. Everyone's human and everyone is vulnerable, really. We all put on masks, but everybody has a tipping point. 
And I learned I hadn't uh, grieved properly for people that had been very close to me. And I learned that I had to really take good care of myself. I mean, it sounds like such a basic, simple idea and in many ways it is. But it can be so difficult sometimes to really take good care of yourself. And I learned really to take much better care of myself through lifestyle as medicine. And I rediscovered my purpose. And, you know, we all have purpose, Claire, as you know. It's a great inner driver of well-being and life satisfaction. And I really, when I asked myself what was my purpose, my purpose really, Claire, I'm really clear on this, is serving others. And every day that I get to go to work, I feel so lucky to be working as a, as a GP. It's a wonderful, wonderful job. And every day that I get to help somebody else in whatever way I can, it's a good day for me. And what if people don't have that? Because I'm often conflicted telling people that because I feel I'm in a lucky position that I found a, a job I really mm. love that that like you, you say you serve people. I get to kind of broadcast things that I'm I'm passionate about um, and yeah. share a message to help others. That's the sort of intention. But what if people are just in a job they fell into to pay the mm. bills and support their family. Does everybody have to have this big overriding purpose? No, purp- no, Claire. I, I think purpose, actually, you're, you're so right. It's often misunderstood. And, you, you know, research has shown that about one in every three people has a strong sense of purpose in terms of, you know, what they do being who they are. And, you know, that applies you know, in, in every profession, in every walk of life. And what's interesting is purpose is not static and you can learn to develop purpose, whatever you're doing right now, by simply asking yourself a few questions. And the Japanese have a, a brilliant term called ikigai. And ikigai really means, you know, that which gives life vitality, that which makes life worth living. So it's the kind of the inner inner essence of your well-being and really you can cultivate more purpose today, right now in your life, no matter what you're doing, by simply answering these four questions. And the four questions are, you know, what what do you love to do? Number one. Number two, what are you good at? In other words, what are your strengths? And number three is, what does the world need? Now, what does the world need might, you know, what might be something on a big scale like, you know, global warming or helping the, the, the refugee crisis in Ukraine, or could be something really, really small, like what can you do uh, in terms of volunteering in your in your local community or with your local sports club? And four, how do I become valued for that? Now, value could be the living you make in terms of your work, or value could be a sense of inner fulfillment you get from making a positive difference. And what interesting research has shown is that we can all enhance our sense of purpose by, you know, committing to serve others more, by using more of our strengths, by, you know, connecting more with really who we are on the inside. And that's what's really interesting about purpose. It's it's really, it's something we can all cultivate. It's something we can all develop. And it can really allow your own inner light to shine, as I say. Because often we attach our, our purpose to what we do for a living and that's only a part of of who we are mm. and if you look at any of the big thinkers maybe somebody like 
Tony Robbins, who will have coached some of the athletes at the top of their game, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires. It doesn't necessarily equate to happiness when you get to that level of success. It's the other elements that you're talking about, you know, the the, the sense of giving back and joy and what you're good at and and celebrating that and, and, and really being focused on that. But people still roll their eyes at the notion of wellness or self-care and things like journaling, gratitude. Everyone's like, oh, for God's sake, do you think there's still a disconnect with that way of living and the impact it has on your quality of life and how you feel every day? I think there's a growing interest in this area. There's a growing interest. So many people I meet now are interested in adding more life to their years and living with more vitality. I see many men now coming into me, Claire, and this is new. I would say over the last 10 years that are willing to talk about how they feel, opening up about their mental health, opening about up, up, uh, work stresses or different things that might have been going on in their in their lives. So I think there's a growing appetite for for well-being and there's a growing appetite for, you know, for vitality. There's a, there's a growing bank of science backing this up. So as I like to say, I, I'll talk about anything that's that's evidence-based, but show me the evidence first because I'm proud to say I'm a medical doctor, I'm a GP, so I'm always interested in the science. And that's what's interesting about the research from lifestyle medicine and positive psychology is that there is so much science backing up the benefits uh, from these practices. And of course, you know, in my in my new book, The Vitality Market, I talk about the hand of vitality, which is a really lovely way of showing how you know, your four fingers are all interconnected and they represent your mind, body, emotion and spirit. And how all of these aspects and elements of your well-being are all interconnected. And then if you reach out your hand, Claire, to, to shake hands with somebody, your thumb points back towards yourself, which is a really a wonderful reminder that, that it starts with taking care of yourself. I mean, Maya Angelou put it so well, that black American uh, poet and wonderful writer, she said, we, we, you know, you have two hands in life. One hand is to reach out and serve and support others. And the second hand is to take good care, reach back and take good care of yourself. And if you look at your thumbprint, Claire, your thumbprint is unique to you. So we are we are all unique. I mean, the chances of someone else on this planet having the same thumbprint as you are thought to be less than one in 64 billion. In other words, minuscule. And what that means is that the, the exact ingredients of what allows you to be you are unique to you. So it isn't about a cookbook. There's no one size fits all. What I'm really saying is that there's a lot of really interesting ideas that are that are really simple that are very inexpensive that are very interesting habits that you can bring into your everyday life i call them micro moments of positivity that can make a real tangible difference not just your lived experience but your uh your your lifespan as well i mean if you just take the very simple idea of spending more time in nature i mean wonderful research now published in nature magazine has shown the minimal effective dose is about two hours, 120 minutes per week. And once you're getting about 120 minutes in, in nature a week, cumulatively, you will experience significant well-being benefits in terms of growing stress hormones like cortisol, in terms of building resilience, enhancing creativity, boosting mood, bringing on, you know, lots of different uh, mood-boosting phytochemicals and, and neurochemicals, whether it's, you know, serotonin, oxytocin, noradrenaline, and so on. The, the same with... We simply getting up out of your chair and moving, you know, when you move for simply 10 minutes, you change your emotional state, you 
you break the, the toxic grip that stress hormones like cortisol have on you that, that happen when, you're, when you have prolonged sitting. So, you know, Hippocrates put it about 2,000 years ago, Claire. You know, he said, if you're in a bad mood, go for a walk. And if you're still in a bad mood, go for another walk. Because, you know, movement is medicine. Is the issue the preachiness of the word should? Do you think in some ways when it comes to our health and wellness, the messaging has become so oversaturated that we've made the quite simple very confusing. People are almost paralysed in action. It can feel exhausting and overwhelming. I, yes, I think that, that there's a lot of merit in that, Claire. I, th- I, I don't like the word should or could. I mean, that's the, your inner critic. You know, I should do, must do, could do. And, uh, you know, no, no one likes to be told what to do, Claire. Um, when, and, you know, when it comes to your health habits, as in particular, I would think, as adults, we like to make up our own minds. And one of the interesting things I've learned as a GP for all these years is, is when it comes to influencing positive change, uh, actions speak louder than words. And, you know, people are, are more interested in seeing do your own actions align with the advice you're giving. So, you know, that gives you more authenticity if you're actually walking the walk, as it were, in terms of your, of your own lifestyle habits. That's number one. Secondly, fear, I think, is a very poor motivator of long-term change. I mean, you know, classically, you know, when we were medical students, he'd be on the wards and poor fellow would be in the bed and he, he, he might be a smoker and he'd be lectured about stopping smoking. Of course, smoking is really bad for your health, but, you know, the, the fear... Fear of lung cancer in the future is unlikely to to get somebody to stop smoking today. Uh, In fact, it might get them to smoke even more. You know, fear of diabetes is unlikely to get you off the couch, Claire, this evening. You know, fear will only affect really short-term change. If somebody has a heart attack, uh, they're likely to do anything the doctor says for maybe for a month. But then you'll tend to go back to your previous habits. We're all creatures of habit. So I, I think really... It's about encouraging people. It's about making healthier choices and healthier options easier for people. And when it comes down to it, Claire, there's really two questions people need to ask themselves if anyone's listening at home this morning. The first is, how important is your health to you? Or how important is any potential health change to you? And really, it needs to be over. You need to be saying it's more than seven out of 10 if you're going to bother. Um, and, And really understanding why you know, we spoke about purpose earlier. Start with why. If you know why moving more will be good for your health, if you know why spending time in nature is going to be better for your for your creativity and your resilience and your stress, if you know why getting a really good night's sleep will be better for your ability to concentrate and ability for your mood and so on. If you know, if you, so if you have the knowledge, if you know your why, as it were, the how gets easier. Yeah. And I think it's really important, as you say, that you're focusing on just moving your body. I mean, even people are thinking, am I supposed to be weightlifting? Am I supposed to be running marathons? And they've they've kind of gone too far. I mean, you're able to just go down to your local park for five minutes, take a few deep breaths and come back. But people feel like that's not enough because there's been such a focus on changing our bodies rather than just changing our health. What I would, and, and you know, it's really like, and people might say, well, you know, I don't need to change, Claire. I'm fine just the way I am. And that's fine. You are, as I say, we're all beautiful and perfect inner imperfections uh, as human beings. But what's interesting is that on the inside, Claire, at a cellular level, we're all changing all the time. Every year, 10% of your bone cells change, your, your blood cells change every few months. So the question really is, 
are you interested in changing in a, in a health enhancing way or a health depleting way? And the question that I ask is, well, what's the smallest thing you could do? I mean, we can, you know, we can, you can talk about marathons and this, that and the other, but what's the smallest thing Claire could do today to give her some evidence that she's moving in that health enhancing direction? And as you said, it might be as simple as that five minute walk in the park. And it's a great question. What's the smallest thing you could do that you could keep up? And it might be just five minutes and maybe five minutes is all you can do. But I think that's wonderful because if you build that as a habit over the next few months and be generous with yourself, give yourself three months, give yourself six months to build it as a habit. Over time, that five minutes you're doing uh, becomes much more sustainable. It feels much more part of the new you. And over time, you can build that to 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And within, you know, a year, uh, you won't know yourself. And I mean, what's interesting is that, and I've learned this in my own life as well, Claire, you know, people, we all tend to overestimate, um, you know, how much we can achieve uh, in a year. Uh, but, but we underestimate what we can achieve in five years. And so if you take a much longer term perspective, and I mean, I think health is a, the greatest asset any of us has. It's absolutely priceless. And to really value your health, it becomes a lifelong commitment to value health. It's about not being perfect. Uh, we're all human. It's about having lots of fun along the way, really enjoying yourself, enjoying your food, enjoying everything. But it's about how can you do that in a way that supports your health? And yeah. That's the smallest yeah. thing you can do to start. Yeah. And I think it's so important that it comes from a nourishing place and, and a positive yes. place and you're trying to affect how you feel. Um, what does vitality mean to you? Why did you choose that word for the book and, and, and that topic? Yeah, thanks, Claire. I think vitality is a great word because it's it's an active word. It's it's a word that has a vibrancy. It's got a positive energy about it. And really, for me, vitality is that is that interconnection between you know your physical energy, between your your mental well being, your emotional well being, or in other words, your emotional bank account, your spiritual well being, and how they are all interconnected, underpinned by a strong sense of purpose and influenced by the environments you spend your time in, not just the outer environments, but also the inner environments of thought and emotion. And, you know, I think vitality as well, it's something that you can measure. I've developed my own vitality mark, which can give you a moment in time assessment of of your vitality. And it's not just about uh, numbers. It's not just about um, how you're feeling. It's, It's about you know, adding more life to your years. And I suppose in a world where there is so much stress and so much noise and so much distraction, I think, you know, COVID has really shown us the last two years that when you strip it all away, I mean, health is really, it's absolutely priceless. And what started during during the lockdowns, I started doing daily videos on social media. Still have them all on Instagram, on the highlights little video just to support people's well-being because I had a lot of patients who, you know, even though we were really busy, there was a lot of people that were really terrified to come to the doctor. That was the truth of it. So I started doing these little daily well-being videos, just short tips, getting out in nature, the benefits of movement, uh, sleep, self-care, whatever it might be. And during lockdown three, I said, wouldn't it be lovely to turn this message into a book to really support people to encourage people 
to live with more vitality because I really believe, Claire, you know, wherever you are in your life, today is a new beginning. Today is a new opportunity to be better to yourself, to treat yourself with more self-compassion, to be kind to yourself and to recommit to bringing more health enhancing habits into your lived experience. Can we talk a little bit about our biological age and our chronological age? We certainly can. I mean, it's it's fascinating. You know, when I started as a GP back in the mid 90s, it was very, very unusual to see somebody, you know, 80 or 85 who was who was thriving. You know, I mean, you'd see people surviving to that age, but it was very seldom you'd see somebody really thriving. It's very common now. So really, you know, we have two ages. You you have the your date of birth uh, and nobody can change that. But then you've got what I call your biological age, which is really the miles on your clock. And what's really interesting, Claire, is that your DNA is not set in stone. And probably 80% of, of the factors that influence how your genetics express themselves, not 100%, of course, but, but about 80% is determined by what's called the epigenome. That's like a switch. It sits on top of your DNA. And your lifestyle habits influence whether these aging genes are turned on or turned off and the rate at which they're turned on. And it turns out that, you know, and they show this in the Harvard School of Public Health, exercising for 30 minutes a day, um, not smoking, eating a largely largely plant-based diet, in other words, eating lots of color uh, every day and, and normalizing your weight can add at least 12 years to your life. It also turns out that your mindset how you see aging has a massive impact on the aging process itself. And this was shown in the University of Ohio and in Yale University. But having a positive view of aging, and what I mean by that, Claire, is, you know, seeing aging as a time when you gain more wisdom, more perspective, more opportunity maybe to give back to your community. You will live at least seven years longer than somebody who sees aging as, as, as associated with loss and decline. So what, what all of this means, Claire, to summarize, is that the lifestyle habits you cultivate each and every day, the exercise and movement you take, the quality of your sleep, the food you eat, the quality of your relationships and your ability to fundamentally recharge from stress have a big impact on your this switch called the epigenome and that influences how your cells age. Well, the book is actually a very easy read and there's lots of I, I loved the hand that you touched on earlier oh, it you. really impresses upon you in very simple and easy to understand way the evidence behind how we can live what really is our best life with vitality it is called the vitality mark dr mark Rowe. thank you so much for coming on thank you claire now, Helen Mort is a writer of both poetry, fiction and non-fiction and her latest book, A Line Above the Sky, melds memoir and nature writing to ask why humans are drawn to danger and how we can find freedom in pushing ourselves to our limits, whether it's climbing a mountain or bringing a child into the world. And she joins me on the line now. Hello, Helen. How are you? Hello. Um, yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a beautiful day here in Sheffield, so I'm I'm, I'm very good today. <laughs> great. That connection with nature with Sun's you is out. a is a big yeah. thing, isn't it? And you really have poured yourself into this book. What what was it like to 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 write it, and how does it feel to have it in your hand now? 
Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm delighted that you responded to it in that way because I don't think I've, I've written in lots of different forms in poetry and fiction, but I've never finished a book, finished writing a book before with quite such a feeling of that's my heart on the page. Um, it, it was quite raw, especially because I was writing some of it in the fairly like early days of motherhood uh, when everything was quite heightened and um and I, and I was also kind of looking back at, at, um, at various archives. So it all, it all felt quite urgent. And um, I was also trying to write some of it during the lockdown with my son at home. Um, so there was that added sort of uh, challenge that, that I think gave the little bits of time, the little pockets of time that I did have a real intensity. Um, and yeah, it feels a bit unreal when you get the the finished book in your hands. You can't quite believe that you managed to write it in, in some ways yeah and there's so such important points in your life not only becoming a mother for the first time but you as I say in the intro kind of attach that in, in a way to your love of, of rock climbing and being in nature and the challenges that that also brings and to have all that documented because quite often we go through life without documenting it bar photographs in our phone that we rarely print out and you wondered will we forget details I mean you have visceral details of your first year of of motherhood that many of us it just melds into the background yeah I mean that's that is one of the strange things about uh, about being a writer you've got all this kind of um, yeah, you've got all, all these archives of your experiences and feelings that, as you say, I think even with the best will in the world, those things do become a bit more difficult to access over time. But what interested me as well when I actually sat down to write was some of the climbs and some of the mountaineering things that I was talking about, you know, things that I'd done 10 years previously or five years previously. I didn't really have much as well like you say I had maybe a few photos on my phone and, and and stuff but I was trying to bring it back from memory and what I found was that those moments it didn't matter how long ago they were there was a special clarity to my memory of being in those places and and I could still remember like individual climbs even if it was something that I'd done you know a decade earlier so I think there is something about climbing um, or being on a mountain that's a bit like um, the act of writing itself. It almost stops time. Um, and I wanted to capture that a little bit in in, in the way I was um, talking about those landscapes and those places. Yeah. And then you're very much in the moment and that's how you really commit it to memory. So have you always been attuned to what you call the wild in you and a connection to the land? When did your love of of climbing begin? Um, very much so from, from as, as young as I can really remember. I think um, I got it all from my dad. Um, my dad uh, was a very, very keen hill walker. Um, he, he particularly, every chance that he got, um, he would always say, you know, why, why, would, you, why would you need to, to leave? Um, like, why would you need to fly to the other side of the world uh, when you could go to Scotland and you could go to Ireland and you could go to, to Wales and you could have these incredible wilderness uh, experiences. So he 
yeah, he did a lot of his um, walking relatively close to home. And ever since I was about three or four, he would take me with him and make me do these these um, <laughs> these really long walks <laughs> that my little legs were <laughs> were struggling with. Um, so it, it was sort of just part of of life from then. And as I got older, I, I started to be more of an equal partner in those adventures. Um, and then I learned to rock climb too, which was not something that he had he had done, but um, yeah, it was like a, another challenge that I, I wanted to do to get to even more remote places. So yeah, I think it's it's just um, it's just something you almost take for granted. Although I hope I never do, you know, take those landscapes for granted. Um, but to be able to get out and do that, um, yeah. And I, I've been thinking about it a lot actually because my dad is um, he's now really really ill and he can't move around um and and you know every time I go out it's got a heightened meaning and um sensibility for me because I'm thinking about the things that I just assume that I'm going to be able to do and the fact that you know we can't always not everybody can everyone's got different circumstances and just not to waste a minute of it really um when I can get out and you love long distance running. When did it go from sort of a, a rambling to more of a, a an athletic status? Um, so uh, when I was at school, um, we used to have to do something. I don't know if this is a universal thing. If it was just my school called the bleep test, which is where, do you know the bleep test is where you have to run a certain distance and the bleeps get faster and you have to keep up with them. I probably um, I probably pushed it from my mind. I was never a sporty <laughs> person, but producer Aiden is nodding vigorously here. Oh. <laughs> yeah, basically that was the start of it for me. I think I, I did one of them and it was because of all the walking, hill walking I'd done with my dad. I must have had some kind of reserve of fitness and I, and I did quite well and I enjoyed the the sensation of really pushing yourself uh, to the limit so then I, I joined an athletics club and uh, yeah started running from from there and I still I still um I still run long distances um I did a uh, the Sheffield half marathon a couple of weeks ago and I now also run with my three and a half year old son in a buggy sort of pushing him which is extra resistance training um <laughs> And the heavier he gets, the harder it becomes. So, And is the enjoyment still there in the same way when the body is pushed to its limits? Yes. I mean, although I definitely think I have a healthier attitude to going out into the mountains and to running than I did when I was a teenager. I think I got quite competitive. I, I would go out with a really fixed goal in mind. And that's not what being outdoors is all about and it's not something that should feel exclusive and about elite sort of competition I I think these days I go out and I take my time and I I look around um, and I've usually got my toddler with me which makes makes it uh, less linear you're not just going from A to B Um, and I think it's amazing that there are athletes like Alison Hargreaves who I wrote about in my, my book um who who did some incredible things in her lifetime in the the high mountains the, those figures to aspire to and be inspired by but also everyone can can um participate in in some way and it's okay to to go out and and you know pushing yourself is going to be massively different for every single person and might mean wildly different things um so yeah i think 
I think the enjoyment is in remembering sometimes to stop and pause and look around you instead of looking at your feet all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And remember, you're doing it for, for joy, I suppose, as well as as achievement. So talk to me about giving birth to your son then in, in 2018 and beginning to draw the comparison between the, the challenges of rock climbing and the challenges of, of labour and mothering. Yeah, I mean, um, the the book does start with quite a um, <laughs> kind of quite a, a graphic account of labour, which I hadn't seen done in mountaineering literature before. But I thought <laughs> it was important to bring it in, um, and it, it kind of all came from 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 being um, being in the hospital and being given gas and air to breathe as sort of pain relief, and me thinking at the time, um, this is like being a high altitude mountaineer breathing oxygen. And then I started thinking of the test of endurance and mental endurance and the uncertainty and the risk, of course. And I was thinking about women in mountains and some of my climbing heroes like Alison Hargreaves and then thinking about the dangers they might face. Um, And then, of course, I was thinking about the long history of childbirth. And again, you know, in terms of taking things for granted, how 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 it is still something that can be incredibly fraught and dangerous and that historically even more so and and you know just being being uh, being very aware of of uh, the risks that the body faces at all times i guess so that's when the book started life really i think uh, in some long hours in the middle of the night in this uh, hospital in in Derbyshire in in England where I live yeah and you describe yourself as over dramatic in labor I mean can there really be such a thing surely everything is allowable in that setup (laughs) well you're making me feel much better um I think again it's all about the mind body uh, kind of thing isn't it and I'd I'd sort of naively uh, got this idea that maybe you can master your body through mental willpower and and all kinds of of nonsense like I mean of course your mind is very 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 important and a big component of everything we do but also um you know you you are being led by your body and there's 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 no shame in just uh uh, going with that and uh, allowing that to happen um, and that I kind of try and do that now when I go to mountains as well or when I go outdoors it's again it's sort of uh uh, it's not all about getting to the top. And in fact, some of the best days that I've had in mountain landscapes, um, I can think of one particular day in East Greenland, which is the most dramatic environment I've ever been lucky enough to visit. This this one day on a beautiful ridge um, above the, the, the fjords where we'd planned to go to the top. And then in the end, it was so beautiful that we all just sat down on this, this ledge, um, this brief kind of flat plateau in the sun and listen to the, the the silence all around us and thought actually that's enough that's better than getting to the top in mm. some ways and um, very different to labor let's be let's yes. be honest i mean <laughs> yes. did you spend Absolutely. i was thinking reading most of your climbing expeditions telling yourself and your body that you could do it and then did you doubt your abilities more in labor and in motherhood Yes, absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I think, um, and I think I had to 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 regain that physical confidence somehow in all ways. I think, um, again, I don't want to sound over dramatic, and I know that everyone's circumstances are very very different, and you know, no one's experience is the same. But for me, 
I, I, yeah, I did. I was used to being what I thought of as a sort of capable person, and I was used to what my my body could do and things like that. And then, yeah, I, I suddenly. Uh, through through the whole journey of pregnancy and motherhood, I started to question that a bit more. And you know, we're we're very lucky to live in an age where information, uh, including information for for new mums, is at the tip of your fingers all the time. You can Google anything. There are forums. There are groups. There's all of that stuff. But for me, paradoxically, it made me less confident. The more I read, the more I obsessed, um, the more I just convinced myself that I was doing it wrong. Um, and, and so I had to learn to trust my own instincts in the way that I would if I was out on a climb. Um, so it all kind of came full circle. Um, and now, now that he's three and a half, I finally sort of feel like I, I know what I'm doing, which I'm sure will will will, will change again very rapidly as yeah. life goes on. But it's so um, interesting when you make the comparisons, like you say, there's elements you can't control, like a misjudged footing or an avalanche mm-hmm. um, and just having to surrender to that. So I suppose that's part of it. And transferring those skills to, to parenting is just that surrendering, knowing that there's parts you can try to yeah. control and, and, and use your intuition and your expertise in. But there's there's a lot of surrender as well. And what about the comparisons of being at one with nature when you're out climbing or walking? And the fact that being a mother is nature. I hadn't really mm. thought of it that way until I read your book. I often decried my own motherhood responsibilities for keeping me from my cliff walks. Mm-hmm. And I forgot that it was the very essence of nature to be at home with them. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I <laughs> the same the same as you. I've, I've very, very much felt that separation. Um, and and uh, it was over time that I, I came to value some of the 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 wildness, I suppose. Yeah. And the naturalness of, of being awake through the night and that that kind of nocturnalness that you discover um and it was actually i think it was the writing process that helped me with that um because i've always been someone who makes sense of things very much um on the page and i think it the writing as well helped me get a different um view about risk and what you just mentioned as well in terms of um you know what risks we can protect from and what we can't and how that applies to how you might feel about your children um because of course they they're, they're going to go off and do things beyond you um and as part of this book came very much from um because I'd written about the mountaineer Alison Hargreaves who died in 1995 on K2 and was criticized in the media because she was a mum of two she carried on climbing after her k- kids had been born and some people said that was very selfish and risky um, and I think judged her in a way that we as a society don't judge fathers who continue to climb. Um, I, I, when my son was very small, I was up in the night following news online and stuff and saw that her son, um, Tom Ballard, who'd go, gone on to be a really successful mountaineer in his own right, had also tragically died in the mountains in, in a very similar way to his mother. And I was really shocked by that Um and and very sort of uh, profoundly affected, but I was just sobbing on on the sofa in the middle of the night. And obviously, I didn't know him. I'm not part of their family. And I was sort of imagining it was my son. Um, and that that kind of 
and and so I needed to explore that story, I think, in a way as well to to gain more of an understanding of how risk operates when you 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 know you're dealing with someone who's an independent being, even if they're they've been dependent on you for a long time as well. It's all very complex, and therefore, to me, um, really interesting. That's that's where I know I want to write a book if something is it something I need to puzzle out in a way or that yeah. I think I think I might contradict myself around almost those are the but that's the beauty the isn't it I mean your chapters are almost like essays they're they're an exploration and there doesn't have to be a final thought at the end you know and, and everyone will take something different I mean even when I think of Alison Hargreaves and her son I think they both died doing something they loved and I know that yeah. that doesn't take from the from the tragedy, but it's a beautiful book, beautifully written and very thought provoking. It's called A Line Above the Sky on Mountains and Motherhood. Helen Mort, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for reading my book so thoughtfully and sensitively. It means a lot. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Take care, my dear. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.